Well, uh, let me now lead us in prayer as we consider this passage from John's Gospel. Gracious Father, please be with us now as we consider your word. Uh, We ask that you would give us hearts to receive it and minds to understand it, uh, and we pray that our response might be to your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. Well, one of the challenges for Christianity in any era, but perhaps particularly our own, uh, is that there are just so few people around who are genuine, dedicated Christians. Uh, And so especially in our time and place in the world, uh, where we know the number of people who are in the church this morning is is vastly dwarfed by the people of Randwick that aren't joining us today, uh, as we go out and we try to share the gospel with people and invite people to trust in Christ... People's response might be, look, for a message it's meant to be for the whole world. There are just so few people who are Christians. Uh, Surely if it really were for the whole world, there'd be more people signing up. Well, John gives a part of the answer to that question in this passage. Because it was the same in Jesus' day, that the number of disciples were few compared to the, the number of the wider society. Uh, But John here wants to show us the tense situation as Jesus puts his message out into the marketplace of ideas. And uh, he invites us to think that things probably haven't changed very much in our day. As we come into chapter 7, Jesus is a marked man. The Jerusalem establishment are trying to kill him. Uh, He's also, as we've been reminded in uh, the end of chapter 6, he's got... He's got Judas in his own ranks of his disciples who's ready to betray him. And so it's not surprising that Jesus has decided to play strategically and remain in Galilee to the north, uh, which is more like his his home territory, uh, and not go down to the south where the Jerusalem establishment uh, have it in for him. However, it starts to get difficult to maintain that strategy when a big Jewish feast comes up. So Ben earlier read to us from Leviticus about the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, this, uh, uh, in Jesus' day, which is you know a good 1,300 years after Moses first instituted it, uh, but they were still celebrating this feast. It was a very popular one. It was a harvest festival, and it was expected that observant Jews would go to Jerusalem for this feast. So what's Jesus going to do about this? His brothers were aware of the issue. They were telling him, listen, you've got to go up to Jerusalem and do some more of your miracles. You know, that's where everybody is. You can't expect to to promote your movement by staying here in secret, out here in the back blocks. I remember once hearing a sermon on this passage by a student minister who was of Middle Eastern background. He was, I think, Egyptian. And he was saying that, that this is what it's like amongst Middle Eastern brothers they tell each other, brother, you've got to promote yourself. And so that was his reflection. This is Jesus' Middle Eastern family. You've got to go and promote yourself, his brothers were saying. But of course, his brothers didn't really understand his mission. And Jesus tries to show them a little of why they don't understand. He says to them in verses six, uh, uh, verse 6, uh, John chapter 7, verse 6, my time has not yet come. Your time, he says, is any time. The world doesn't hate you, but it hates me because I testify against it that its deeds are evil. 
See, Jesus has to be strategic because the world already wants to kill him. And the simple reason for that is he points out people's evil. Fundamentally, he points out that the world has turned its back on its creator, God. He says to his unbelieving brothers, look, your time is any time. In other words, you're part of the world. You're at home in the world. You're not there to criticize the world and it's turning away from God. Therefore, the world doesn't hate you. You can relax. And this is how he explained to his brothers that he wasn't going up to the festival, at least not straight away. Well, his brothers went up to the festival and then, we're told, Jesus also went up at the right time in secret. You get the sense that this festival was a tense occasion and that's precisely because of Jesus. The Jewish leaders were expecting him at the festival. The crowds were expecting him at the festival and the crowds also knew that the Jewish leaders did not like him. People had their individual opinions about Jesus. Some thought he was good and others thought he was misleading the the crowds. But they were afraid to voice their opinions for fear of the Jewish leaders. This question, what do you think about Jesus of Nazareth, which remains this very day the most important question that anyone could ever ask, it became the ultimate elephant in the room. Everyone was thinking about it and no one could talk about it openly. Why? For fear of the leaders. The leaders were censoring the discussion by keeping the people in fear. Now, I think we just need to make the observation that people have been trying to silence talk about Jesus ever since. One of the biggest examples in history is the attempt to prevent people from having the Bible in English. Uh, You know, if you've heard me preach before, I'm fond of talking about this. When William Tyndale produced his English Bible in the 1520s, which was being printed in Holland and then shipped across to England, the king's men were buying up as many of these Bibles as they could and burning them. They did not want people having God's word to read for themselves in their own language. It also happens on a smaller scale every day of the week. Uh, One Christian lady related to me how her mother was, this is back in the 1950s, was happy for her to talk about God, but didn't want her mentioning Jesus all the time. No, don't mention Jesus. Because you see, that's where it gets personal and therefore unsettling. It's the talk about Jesus that my friend's mum wanted to suppress. Now, I'm a big fan of the saying that you should never believe anything until it's been officially denied. If there is a message out there that people are trying to suppress, you know that it's a message that is probably worth listening to. So I really want it to sink into our ears this morning that the message about Jesus of Nazareth is a message which people have been trying to suppress ever since Jesus was on the earth himself. And no wonder when you see what that message is. John records that halfway through the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. 
how amazing it would have been to be there in the temple courts and hear Jesus' teaching. Verse 15 says that the Jews were amazed at how he could speak this way without training. Even his enemies had to take their hats off to his learning. They were saying, how did, they, how did he get such learning? And they probably meant that as a rhetorical question, but Jesus actually gave them an answer. He said, well, you want to know how I got such learning? It's because this is not for me. It comes from the one who sent me, my father. He was saying, this message that I am preaching to you today in the temple courts, it is from heaven itself. Well, no wonder they're impressed, but no wonder they're trying to censor it. Of course, the question remained a debated one, but well, are, are these messages, is this message of Jesus actually from heaven? Jesus' claims were contested. We've heard already that some were saying he was a good man, others were saying he was a deceiver. That is still the same today as well, isn't it? Jesus' claims are still contested. You can buy, you can find many books you could buy urging you to become a Christian. You can also find books uh, that, that say that the whole thing is nonsense. And to be fair, you can't find very many books these days that say that Jesus is a bad person or a deceiver. Uh, Jesus, brand, Jesus himself has still got a pretty good brand. Nevertheless, Jesus' claims are contested even to our day. And so how does a person navigate the marketplace of ideas? Well, in verse 17, Jesus gives us his advice on how to approach this marketplace of contested ideas. He says there, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God. In other words, if you've got a true and honest commitment to doing the will of God, you will realize that Jesus is telling the truth. The leaders who were opposed to Jesus, I mean, they would, of course, have said we're trying to do the will of God, but Jesus calls them out on that. He says in verse 19, Moses gave you the law and you're trying to kill me. He names the really big elephant in the room. It's a risky thing to say, isn't it, to accuse people of trying to kill you, but Jesus is not saying this just for the sake of being shrill. He is pointing out that the leaders are acting inconsistently with their own law. In a big way, they're planning to break the commandment against murder. And his point is, if you are actively breaking the law of God, well, you can forget about searching for truth. There is no way you're going to be able to make objective judgments about truth, about whether Jesus' message is right or wrong, if you have scrambled your moral compass so severely. Don't forget this. Let me just recap this point before I move on. The big claim that Jesus is making here is his teaching comes from heaven. That he is offering something supremely precious here, a message direct from the throne room of God. A message which, if you should stumble upon this in the marketplace of ideas, you should latch onto it and never let it go. You know that Bible that you've got in your pew there that you've probably got at home. That is an extremely valuable contraband item. 
If we were in the midst of a wartime coffee shortage and somebody brought you some beautiful, valuable contraband coffee, would you let that go to waste? No way. The Bible is an even more valuable contraband item than that. Yet there is something deeply sobering in verse 21. You'll see there the crowd said to Jesus, you have a demon. Now it's an astonishing thing to say. They're effectively saying, look, you're unhinged. And this is in response to Jesus claiming that there's a death threat against him. Now, you and I know that when somebody claims to be persecuted, it does really provoke a reaction. I mean, if somebody's claiming to be persecuted and if we're not convinced it's true, then we tend to think that person's a bit loopy. In Jesus' case, he was not just being shrill. He had a reason for saying this. And he would have said it in a calm tone of voice. The same is true today. Jesus' followers continue to be persecuted to this day. It is the way of the world. And contrary to what many people think, that, well, there's just a lot of religious persecution out there, all the groups persecuting each other, if you look into the facts of the case, you find it's actually not true. It is mostly Christianity that gets persecuted And I've got a book here that you can borrow if you want. If you don't believe me, uh, this is a book which carefully documents the, the, the persecution of Christianity in the world. It happens mostly in the Muslim world and also under totalitarian regimes like North Korea. It's actually important for our Christian maturity to understand this. It's not an optional extra to understand that Christians are persecuted. Uh, because Jesus promised his disciples that it would take place and the facts bear it out. Well, let me try to sum up and launch into my final point. I've been wanting to show you, as, as John, I think, wants to show us, why it's complicated and difficult for a person to hear the gospel and believe it and, and why this is important because we've, we've got the fact out there, well, most people are not Christians, So we need an explanation. Why why is this? Well, there are many complicating factors for a person coming to believe the gospel. Uh, They were there in Jesus' day and they're there still today. First of all, Jesus' message is unpopular because he tells the world that it's evil and that we need to change. Second, there are always vested interests trying to silence the message. Third, we have our own vested interests, whereby if if I'm actively committed to some sin, then I will not think objectively about Jesus' claim to be Lord. Fourth, Jesus was persecuted in his own life and the church continues to be persecuted today. The marketplace of ideas, as far as the gospel is concerned, is not an efficient market. So the question for us is, how do we discern truth in this tense situation of vested interests and censorship. Jesus says two things in particular in this passage. First of all, you have got to have a desire to do the will of God. 
Those words there in verse 17 can be taken as a promise. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. In other words, the the marketplace of ideas doesn't need to be bewildering. We make it bewildering by our own desires and by decisions that we've made. If you've got an honest, heartfelt desire to know the truth about God and to practice it, if you've got a willingness to change your life, you will know that Jesus is the real deal. Just a few of the reasons that I know Jesus is Lord is because it's because of Jesus that I have tried to calm down my anger. It's because of Jesus that I'm faithful to my wife, that I give away money, that I try to be kind and patient with people, that I try to be an encouraging father. Would I be a moral disaster if I were not a Christian? Probably not. But if I look at the fruit which Jesus has produced in me, it's good fruit. Finally, Jesus says, don't judge on the surface, but judge with righteousness. Uh, You might have found it a bit strange the way Jesus answered their question, who is trying to kill you? Uh, by referring back to the miracle that he did back on his last visit to Jerusalem when he healed the lame man at the well on the Sabbath. They were judging him to be a lawbreaker because he told the man to carry his mat on the Sabbath. But Jesus is saying, talk about a surface interpretation. Shouldn't it be clear to a person who, to anyone who's thought about what the Sabbath is, 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 is there for? that the Sabbath was a perfect day to make that man whole. If you judge with righteousness and not on the surface, you will know that Jesus is the real deal. So I want us to be encouraged here today that the, the numbers are small, but there are reasons why the crowd finds it hard to embrace Jesus. Should we pray earnestly for for more people to come to Jesus? Yes, of course. We can and we must do that. But as for us, let us be happy to go against the crowd because Jesus has brought to us a message which is from heaven itself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to us with a message from heaven itself. Father, we thank you that for us, that amidst all of the noise, you have given us the clarity to be here and to recognize that Jesus is the real deal. We do pray, Father, that you would help us to stay to stay in Christ and also that you would please, in your mercy, bring more people to hear his saving message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.